When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Later in the show, we will speak once again to Nick DeMarco, Casey, leading barrister in sports law, friend of the show, and he'll be telling us about the second edition of his book, Football and the Law, and answering some of your questions. And I think, Kieran, much as we love each other, we can both agree that it's worth people just listening to us blether on about news for 10 minutes to get to the Nick DeMarco bit, because it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, Nick was amazingly, A, smart, and B, very open, I think, in terms of his answers. Uh, you know, he is he is the number one sports barrister in the country for a reason, and that will become very evident uh, when you, you see his his measured, proportionate, but also very much on the money answers. Well, I think that describes us as well, doesn't it, Kieran? Measured, proportionate. No, no, no. <laughs> no. I, <can't. laughs> I couldn't get to the end of that sentence without breaking down. Before we talk to Nick, there are a, a couple of fairly big news stories, uh, Kieran. Uh, the first is that Ukraine is going to join Spain and Portugal's bid for the 2030 World Cup. Is this a, a symbolic gesture, Kieran, or, or a genuinely financial one? Um, well, uh, Ukraine was involved in the 2012 European Championships. It was a co-host there, um, and uh, anybody who went to those uh, to those matches would have had a great time. Um, th- there are three potential hosts of the 23rd world 2030 world cup so we've got an interesting one coming from um a combined egypt greece and saudi arabian bid um i I think we know where the funding for that is coming from having just seen that saudi arabia is also planning a 400 billion uh dollar snow dome to host the 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 I think they're trying to host the equivalent of the the Winter Olympics mm. uh, in Saudi Arabia, which will be a, uh, a an amazing achievement of architectural uh, skill. Uh, so, so clearly, could, yeah, could, the, the would, money's there. Will it be one of those snow domes that a giant hand could pick up and shake, and then it actually starts to snow? Because that would be <laughs> that would be worth seeing, wouldn't it? That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, that would be absolutely amazing. Um, so, so that has had some traction. Um, in addition, there is a, uh, a bid from South America, uh, from Uruguay, Argentina, Paraguay, and Chile. Uh, and th- then there was a effectively a UEFA-backed uh, bid, you know, because individual federations, what they normally say is that we will we will back uh, you know, a bid if, if, we're, if we're allowed to under sort of the, the roster system that they have at UEFA. Um, so it was originally Spain and Portugal, uh, but uh, I, I think uh, you know, Zelensky has said uh, that or that uh, that uh, Ukraine would be willing. I think to host one of the groups. Uh, now, clearly, there are 
there are complications in 2022. We hope those complications are resolved uh, as, as, as swiftly as possible and that, that uh, the people of Ukraine will be uh, in, a, in a free and fair country uh, in a position where you know, fans will be able to go, people will be able to go to attend matches because although football is taking place in Ukraine at present, uh, those, those places where it can physically take place, um, there's, there's no crowds allowed just in case mm. uh, Putin's mob uh, you know, threaten that with a with some form of, of attack. Um, so it there, there there is a political element to this. I, I think I think we yeah we, we cannot be naive in all of this. Uh, but at the same time, it, it would be it would be a great final. And people saying, well, you know, why are we now seeing joint hosts of, of tournaments? I, I think there's there's two. Uh, key factors here. Yeah, we all know that the the host country automatically qualifies for the tournament. Um, FIFA are increasing the number of teams who are participating in the in the FIFA World Cup tournament from thirty two to forty eight. Uh, I'm I, my my spreadsheet isn't big enough to work out <laughs> how much that's going to cost me in panini stickers. Uh, but I'm working on it, I can assure you. Um, so, so there's 48 teams, which will allow more hosts. But also, you've only got to look to see what happened in both South Africa in 2010 and Brazil in 2014 to realise that hosting the World Cup from a financial perspective, and ultimately, you know, this is a football finance show, uh, is economically a disaster. Um, because you end up with uh, you know a, a lot of mothballed stadiums, which are costing a fortune to maintain. There's petitions taking place in Cape Town, for example, to demolish the the stadium, uh, which was which was effectively created on the waterfront. And I, and I was lucky; I, I went to three matches there during the 2010 World Cup. Had one of the the, the greatest times of my life as a fan because everybody was uh, so hospitable, and you know the fan zones were amazing. But you know, like the best parties, uh, some, some, there's always uh, there's always a big clear up operation. So those costs are going to be spread, um, and Ukraine could could contribute to that uh, in 2030. the The vote is taking place, I think, at the the FIFA Congress in 2024. So there's still a lot of time for politicking. Um, you know, England initially were offering to host the the 2030 World Cup. Um, and yeah, you know, we're we're one of those countries uh, which which doesn't need a lot of change because the infrastructure is already there. But you know, as always, the, in football, in finance, there's an element of politics as well. Uh, it looks as if the the football association has has agreed to quietly drop that bid uh, in 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 lieu of getting the nod for the 2028 uh, Euro. Uh, championships, you know, along with uh, uh, Scotland, Wales, and, and Ireland. So we'll we'll see what happens there. Well, whoever gets to host the World Cup, Kieran, at least we know it will be as part of an open, transparent, and fair process. Um, I'll, just, I'll just let that pause there, because in case some people don't know, I'm being sarcastic. I've got nothing. <laughs> I've got nothing against joint bids. Okay, no, no. I mean, otherwise, football mad countries like you know Egypt, Greece that you mentioned, Belgium, Ireland, Uruguay, they're not going to be able to host a World Cup on their own, and I, I don't see why as many countries as possible shouldn't see World Cup games in their country. Um, these are starting to be worrying times for South End United fans, uh, Kieran. 
Um, mm. The drums seem to be approaching, and there's more bad news for them this week, I feel. Yes. Um, there, there was a, uh, a message put out by the, the front of shirt sponsors called PG Site Services, uh, effectively saying a few days ago that they were withdrawing support, they were withdrawing sponsorship from the club um, due to, and I here used the words in quotation marks, financial dishonesty in, in terms of how that sponsorship was uh, was obtained. Um, and you know, clearly that's quite, a, quite an inflammatory comment. That's clearly quite an emotional comment. And then... Then that message was withdrawn, and we've seen something subsequently appear on on the club website. Now, you know, normally, normally football clubs, press officers, when they've got something to say, they're they're quite happy to say it in as many yeah. words as as they choose. Um, I, I would describe this statement as terse, huh. um, uh, but it did say that uh, you know, following uh, following some publicity with regards to the uh, the sponsorship. Um, they, they are now happy to confirm that the relationship with PG Site Services is going to carry on for the next two and a half years, uh, that the sponsors have withdrawn the comments that they've made on social media. So what exactly is going on behind the scenes? We're, we're not certain. Uh, at the same time, uh, Southend have been given a transfer embargo by the National League um, and this is on the back of Southend United failing to make the requisite payments under HMRC's time to pay scheme. So for people not familiar with this, um, during, uh, during COVID, if people, you know, COVID really hit clubs in, in, in lower football very significantly. Um, HMRC said, we know that you're deducting money from VAT revenues. We know you're deducting, but you're, you're effectively collecting money in terms of, of PAYE. And that, that money normally has to be paid across on a monthly or a quarterly basis to, to the tax authorities. Um, what we're going to do in order to aid cash flow, um, you know, in combined with the furlough scheme, we're going to give you additional time and come up with some proposals uh, with, with a view not to not paying the tax, but to paying it over a longer period of time. Um, and that involves an element of trust. Uh, it looks as if Southend United have missed uh, one of those payments, at least to HMRC. Um, there were some mutterings, I think, in December 2021, uh, also with some HMRC-related issues. So as a result of that, uh, you know, HMRC, they, they normally sort of do two strikes and you're out or, uh, you know, when they, when they give people extra time to, uh, to make financial commitments. So HMRC has now cancelled the time to pay scheme, uh, effectively saying we want our money and we want our money now. The club, uh, the club owners are saying, well, you know, we've got legitimate reasons um, and you know it's uh, you know we're we're innocent parties here, Gov. You know we we could have taken a Premier League loan uh, to to pay off the tax, but we chose not to, as if that's some sort of virtue. Uh, you know my my understanding is that quite a few clubs you know did make the commitment to the the Premier League loan, um, but there were conditions attached, as there are to all things, and uh, you know for whatever reason, Southend 
didn't like those conditions, which doesn't necessarily reflect badly on the Premier League or well on South End. I'll, I'll, I'll go into no more detail than that. But yeah, we, we, we've now got that sort of drip, drip, drip of issues, you know, falling out with a major revenue source, falling out with the, the tax authorities, uh, you know, issues in terms of staff not being paid on time. The, the owner... Uh, I'm not saying this because the owner is called Ron, but the owner is called Ron. Uh, you know, the, the the owner sort of saying that you know I'm I'm I'm, I'm the good guy in all this, um, and and there's no doubt that the owner has put in money to the club. You know, I, I, I cannot deny that. But the owner wanting to move the club away from Roots Hall uh, to effectively you know, more of an out of town location, uh, that means that the uh, that Roots Hall is is open for development. Uh, uh, so you know, I'm always um, uncomfortable with with property related issues. You know, having seen what happened at Brighton, uh, you've been through similar experiences at Palace, where mm. you know the, the club was sold, but the the ground was sold to somebody else, and yeah. you, you know yourself the the repercussions and the complications that that causes. Uh, there, there's there's too many red flags at South End to make anybody feel particularly comfortable. It may come as no surprise to you, Kieran, to know that I am familiar with HMRC's time to pay scheme because uh, it was offered to people in the entertainment industry and very handy it was too um, until I forgot that there would come a time when I would have to pay, uh, so, <laughs> so, which is why the first of the month is an anxious time. I think I'm paying them to about 2027, 20, but never mind. It was there. I, I've, I have to say, I found HMRC very solicitous in their dealings with people in my industry because we we simply couldn't, mm. uh, you know, money that you'd put aside had to be used to live. Unfortunately, they understood that. Uh, this financial dishonesty, as you say, Kieran, is a strange choice of words, and I'm, I'm struggling to think what they could mean because you know it's them that pay the club money that the club wouldn't be paying them money, would they? So it's not like they they haven't been paid. So could can you make a guess as to what that might mean? Um, I think when when the club was you know, ultimately the club's pitching, the club's saying, "Please give us some money. Um, we're going to put this for you know towards X, Y, and Z, or X, Y, and Z even." Um, and uh, if if the sponsors feel that they have acted in good faith, uh, perhaps they've accelerated some of the payments. Yeah, you know, we, we um, and, and this is pure speculation here, and. That uh, that that commitment from the sponsors has not been reciprocated. Um, perhaps the sponsors feel in making that comment, which of course we have to note has subsequently been withdrawn, that uh, they were uh, they, they were led along a path uh, uh, in order to to get the club money asap mm. when. Well, well yeah, when no. perhaps it wasn't as required, or perhaps it was being used for different commitments than than they initially thought. Yeah, it's probably best on a show where we have the country's leading sports barrister not to start speculating about things that <laughs> might, might lead to him emailing us on behalf of South End United in a couple of weeks' time. Um, we've never fully established, Kieran, what the opposite of the naughty step is. Uh, but whatever it is, for you, Plymouth Argyle have certainly been on that step, the top step. And I think that you might have to invent a, a step above that because they've done something this week, Kieran, that will... I imagine make you very proud of them. Yes, yes, and, and also, you know, we're 
we're we're going to Plymouth in December. So uh, and and the re- and one and one of the reasons we're going is because they they do the right things again and again and again. Yeah, we we we've had Simon Hallett on the show showing his philosophy a bit like Jason at Grimsby and Andy and, and Mark Palios. You know, they're, they're in a in an industry which gets a lot of criticism. It it is refreshing. Uh, I, th- I think for us, because uh, you know, we've we both become quite jaundiced since <laughs> starting this show, uh, to to know that there there are good people out there who who believe in the, the 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 benefits of openness, transparency, governance, and so on. Um, so so what Plymouth have done, you know, it's it's only uh, the start of October. They, they're under no legal obligation to to publish their accounts until the 31st of March they've got they're under no legal obligation to uh, publish a, uh, a a full set of accounts but they've said well we want to be open you know we, we feel that by being open with fans who um, it actually improves the relationship uh, you know you and I we've both seen the the huge affection with which you know Andy Holt is held at Accrington by by fans there but by just being upfront with people. Um, so, so Plymouth have, have published their accounts. They're the first domestic uh, people to do this, and, and people say, well, "Hold on, you've, you, you know, you, you covered Manchester United's accounts last week." Manchester United's accounts were published in New York, uh, and remember, Manchester United is is registered in the Cayman Islands, so so it's it's under a slightly different regime, and it's a listed company, and, and so on. Um, so Manchester United had to get their accounts out quite early to comply with New York Stock Exchange rulings. Uh, so Plymouth have, uh, have have come out with their accounts, um, and I would say that they're they're pretty damn solid. You know, uh, revenue has doubled uh, to, to over eleven million. I think it it's certainly the highest I've seen uh, in, in in a set of Plymouth accounts. Although historically, and this is not a criticism of the previous owners, historically that they they always used to produce a cut down version. Um, it looks as if the the thinking at the club is you know, one of the things we've, we've said on many an occasion. Football's a really dumb industry because you're open 25 days a year and, and the ground's doing nothing <laughs> for 340. Yeah. What uh, what Plymouth are doing is that they they are going down the hospitality route, um, and, and that uh, I think it, that's almost trebled compared to 2021. Um, it's also indicative, you know, and I think you've said yourself, Kevin. That you think that Plymouth are sort of if if we if we talk about sleeping giants or clubs that could get to the Premier League and you know have a a, a big fan base there, Plymouth is is one of those cities. Oh yeah, um, and and I think that's that's reflected in the fact that uh, yeah whenever I've I've seen Plymouth go away, they they always travel in numbers, and yeah with the exception of Exeter and Torquay, they, there's there's not many short distances that they have to travel, um, but what is indicative of the size of the fan base was that even though 21-22 was a non-COVID year, they generated £650,000 from streaming rights. So the, the iFollow system, I, I think uh, it has got over its teething problems and it is now proving to be uh, an additional revenue source for clubs. So so that's, that, that's quite indicative of the level of support. And it was only slightly down on the figures from the previous season, which of course were hugely disrupted as a result of COVID. Um, they, they, they've got cash in the bank, although I think that that cash is being used to, for uh, infrastructure projects because they, they want to expand the facilities. Um, 
since the year end, I think they've raised about another four million pounds from investors. Uh, it's going into property assets. Uh, they, 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 they're a club, and, and I know you know we'll when we when we talk to to Nick, you know, one of the things he says that clubs have uh, improved uh, from a, from a legal perspective since he started uh, in, yeah, getting involved in football and the law. They they, they are they've become uh, far more legally aware of issues. Um, Plymouth have got a financial strategy, and, and yeah, we don't we don't support football clubs for financial strategy. Um, but all I would say is, if you don't have one, you, you tend to up end up in the poo. And uh, it, it's it's good to see a club that seems to know where it's going, seems to know at what pace they should be trying to get there, um, and and that allows you to deal with the uh, you know the ups and downs and the uncertainties of football from a much stronger position. Yeah, spoiler alert here, Kieran. One of the other things we talk about, um, one of the many other things we talk to Nick DeMarco about, is uh, the number of American-owned clubs in the Premier League, and it's possible that there may be another. Yes. Um, so, Everton Football Club. Um, Everton is presently owned by Farhad Mashiri. There, there have been talks. Historically, when, um, when when the sanctions were imposed on Alicia Usmanov mm. uh, by the UK government, it meant that his uh, his sponsorship of uh, Finch Farm, which is the training facilities, uh, that that was through one of his companies. Another one of his companies was uh, was front of shirt sponsor of the women's team, uh, and so on. He'd also paid a very unusual 30 35 million pounds for the for the potential naming rights of the the new stadium all of that has has now had to cease um and people have been asking okay where are everton going to get somewhere in the region of 500 million pounds to to fund the new stadium and and you know i i, tra- I travel on the train um, uh, uh, to liverpool and through liverpool and and you can see the progress which is being made uh, and and it, you know, it, it does it does look quite spectacular. Uh, the, the 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 start, yeah, they, they've started to put in the corners and and some of the some of the the stairwells and so on. So it, it is one of those amazing things, you know, And when they do the final time lapse uh, mm. summary of, of the building of, of of the new stadium, I think fans will be hugely impressed. But yeah, the elephant in the room is okay. Where's the money coming from? So there's there's been talk of a consortium uh, involving an American investor called Kaminsky, uh, who was involved with Peter Kenyon. Peter Kenyon was historically uh, chief executive of Manchester United and then Chelsea. He was involved in the consortium to try to acquire Newcastle. So he's he, he's he's done the rounds, uh, and I'll say no more than that. Um, and then that all appeared to to die. They they, they approached Mashiri a few months ago with, with regards to a takeover. Um, but then there was an article in the Financial Times last week, and I, and I think this is indicative of you know ten years ago nobody gave a damn about football finance, including the Financial Times, and, and, and that was perfectly understandable. The fact that they now have full time journalists working on football stories, both in uh, effectively in in, uh, in in London and New York, so so this you know the F, the FT would not the FT would not publish an article unless they they'd researched it to say that the Kaminsky deal uh, yeah never say never four hundred million pound deal 
would appear to be the the price involved. Everton have sort of pushed back, saying, well, there's been no conversations that we're aware of, you know, being very coy. That doesn't mean that we're not looking for some form of investment. Um, but if it does take place, um, then, then you know, we could have uh, an another, another American owner. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, you and I, we both love America. Uh, I, I, think, I think American owners have something different to offer to some of the other owners that we have in, in the Premier League. Um, and some of their ideas are progressive and some of those ideas I would describe as restrictive. But you, know, you, you, can't, you can't give sweeping generalisations because you know, different owners might have actually different perceptions themselves. Yeah, there's some things I like about America, Kieran. You know, the buffalo wings, for example. I could probably think <laughs> could probably think of a few more. I wouldn't like to sweepingly generalise that I'm um, a huge fan of America. Of course, I'm a fan of most countries. Um, I, I'm waffling, Kieran. I don't like. I don't really even want to introduce this next news story because it's annoying me. <laughs> uh, so in, in fact, uh, <laughs> it's annoying me so much. I'm not even going to ask you, to, you. You you just do it, Kieran. I'm going to scribble some notes here. I'm doodling. I'm doodling now, Kieran. Well, we had the Todd Bowley suggestion mm. of North versus South. Mm. Now, you know, and uh, he, he seems to think that there's a bigger North versus South divide in this country than, than there, is in the, uh, there is in the USA. Um, we are now uh, having a proposal of the All-Star Games, yeah. which will take place on a league basis so premier league te- a premier league team versus la liga versus bundesliga we'll throw in the mls uh yeah we could throw in uh, a uh, you know perhaps the the, the, the japanese the j league you know it's all of a sudden we've got uh, a a new competition um and is there an interest for this? Okay, I'll put my cards on the table here. There's not a lot of interest for it, I suspect, in in England. But you know, does that mean that's because we're being parochial? Or does that it just is just not part of our culture, not part of our history? If you were to host if you were to have that that tournament taking place in Saudi Arabia, for example, mm. in uh, in Japan, you know, in some of the international markets. I, I'm pretty certain that the tickets would sell. I'm pretty certain that the local TV rights in particular would be uh, very high. Um, but, of course, it involves more games. And we, 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 I've just seen a report looking at the number of injuries that were, that, uh, that were reported last year, you know, soft tissue industries amongst professional footballers. Uh, if, if you follow the likes of FIFA Pro, if you listen to the, the PFA, this, this, is a, this is a cause for concern for their members. You, you cannot keep uh, squeezing footballers and, and, until the, the pips squeak themselves uh, you know, because they are professional athletes. Uh, you know, Usain Bolt was brilliant, but it didn't mean that he should go and do you know, 50 or 60 attempts to, to beat the 100 metres record in a single year. You know, the, whole, the whole thing about being a professional athlete is that you do need a, a proper regime of training, rest, recovery, diet, and so on, as, as well as competing in the sports themselves. So a lot of the proposals that we are seeing um, involve players playing more games. 
then there's going to be complications. Yeah, who's going to be the coach of the Premier League team? Who's going to be the coach of the Bundesliga team? Is it going to be seen by some teams, uh, uh, especially some team managers and some team players, as yeah, a bit like a, an international friendly, and, and you start to get huge numbers of players dropping out? Uh, uh, and my, my concern with all of these ideas, which involve more games, then somebody is thinking there has to be fewer games elsewhere. Uh, now, my personal view is that we won't have a League Cup beyond 2024. This will be part of the negotiations between the EFL and the Premier League uh, in terms of the prep. Effectively, I'm, 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 it's not a bribe. It's it's a negotiation. But the Premier League gives more money to the EFL and the EFL either abolishes the the league cup or alternatively it uh, it takes place with uh, the clubs which are taking place in Europe not competing or then putting in under 21 teams and if anybody's taken a look at the the Papa Johns uh, you know the the under 21 teams of Premier League teams even big teams in the main are getting an absolute pasting because because there is a difference between uh, you know more experienced professionals and and people who are developing their trade so uh, the, the the Carabao Cup will either go or will be significantly changed. Certainly, we will see uh, no more replays in the FA Cup, which uh, you know is is an income source for for the smaller clubs. My big concern is this will be part of the drip, 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 which we are hearing a lot more of, reducing the the Premier League to eighteen teams. And let, let's declare self interest here. I'm a Brighton fan. You're a sorry, sorry, sorry. What have I just said? I'm, sorry, yeah, I'm, I'm a Brighton fan. You're a Palace fan. Um, we we of our teams play 38 games a year, as do the fans of Villa, Leeds, Newcastle, Wolves, Leicester, West Ham. You know, all all sides who have done you know done decently well. Um, if you reduce the number of matches that, that our teams play from 38 to 34. Um, and you increase the number of matches in the Champions League for the European clubs, the financial gap, which is already huge, gets bigger and bigger. Um, it will be their their players, yeah, the, the, the players of the big six, which will be representing the, the Premier League and the Bundesliga and so on. So they'll probably get more money from that. And what I, I don't see what's in it for the, the broader football fan base. Uh, and, and that's where my reservations are going uh, because these ideas all add up to the same thing. More more money, more matches for the bigger teams and increasingly lack of football balance as far as our showcase competition, which is the Premier League, is concerned. Uh, I'm going to pitch this idea for a show to my agent. We'll, we'll, we'll wait till they've built that snow dome in Saudi Arabia and host it there. We'll get Michael McIntyre to introduce it. Uh, uh, Premier League eleven will face the Bundesliga, and at half time, Tyson Fury will fight Anthony Joshua. <laughs> Think that'll make him happy. Um, two more stories, Kieran. The first one I can only describe as Barcelona still getting away with it. <laughs> yeah, um, Barcelona's credit card, Limey <laughs> O'Reilly. They, they know how to use that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, 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 I develop a nervous tick when the Baroness says, "I'm, I'm, I'm going up to, uh, I'm going up to Cheshire to see some of my friends, uh, and I'll be going to the big John Lewis." And uh, so, yeah, I just, oh, I, 
I, I hide under a, <laughs> I, I hide under a cushion for about six hours. And, and um, yeah, uh, but Barcelona, as we know, they've had financial challenges. They've used their economic levers um, as a means of uh, addressing and overcoming the the financial challenges that they've been given. Um, they've also been using the club credit card as a means of acquiring players. And let's be honest, this is a common feature of modern-day football. Uh, when players are signed, they are signed on credit. They, in, uh, transfers are made on instalments. We all understand that. Um, and not, and you know, very few people are in a position where they can write out a cheque for 60 or 70 million pounds at the drop of a hat. So that, that makes a lot of sense. I absolutely get that. Um, Barcelona owe... 144 million euro in respect of of players that they've signed. Again, I don't actually have a huge issue as far as that's concerned. Manchester United owe 182 million. You know, nobody, and that was before they went, you know, disco loopy, disco loopy this summer in terms of buying players. Mm. What makes me feel slightly uneasy is that Barcelona still owe money on instalments for Philippe Coutinho. Uh, they owe that money to to Liverpool Football Club, uh, and people go, "Hold on, haven't they sold Philip Coutinho to uh, Aston Villa?" Yeah, uh, and and indeed they have. Uh, now, my understanding is that if that was a domestic transfer, if if uh, if Coutinho had gone from say Liverpool to Chelsea to Villa, uh, I, I may have got this wrong, but I, I, I was listening to somebody who said, "Well, under those circumstances, um, when when the players sold on to another domestic club." Uh, Chelsea would have had to go and pay all of the, the final instalments to Liverpool as part of the deal. But in international deals, that is not the case. So Barcelona have sold Philip Coutinho. They've also uh, they've also sold Pjanic, who uh, they acquired from Juventus in what was a fairly controversial deal yeah. uh, as well. He's departed, uh, but they owe instalments in respect of that deal to, to Juventus. So they, they owe €50 million euro to two other clubs in respect of players who are no longer at their club. And that that just doesn't lie particularly easy with me, but it's perfectly legal uh, uh, as far as uh, UEFA rules are concerned. Yeah, perhaps we should get a Real Madrid fan on to see what they think. Um, <laughs> just before that Nick DeMarco interview, um, if you're planning to go to the World Cup in Qatar in a few weeks' time and you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'll just watch a couple of the games in a hotel bar, oh, might have some bad news for you. You're absolutely right here, Kevin. Um, it looks as if the, the the rights holder for the World Cup broadcasting rights, which is which is Bay Inn Sports, mm. uh, the employer of uh, Richard Keyes, unfortunately, I don't have strong opinions on many things, but I do have quite a strong opinion when it comes to, to Richard Keyes. Yeah. Um, let, let, let's not go there, Kieran. This, this I'm pod, not going to go there. This, this pod's quite a, a long one as it is about getting into stories of that weasel. So, yes. Uh, um, so, so it looks as if uh, Bay In Sports are going to charge um, hotels and bars um, 100,000 Qatari reals, which is approximately 24,000 pounds, if they want to to show the matches uh, on their premises. Um, 
now, you know, if if you talk to a, a pub owner, if you talk, you know, I'm, I, you know, I I play for for Trafford Cricket Club, and we've got a rugby club there as well. Um, you know, we we have to pay a lot more to Sky and BT Sports for the rights to show uh, their products uh, in, in a commercial uh, in, in a commercial place, and and you know, we we understand why because it attracts people to to come to the bars to drink more. So you know the the hotel, the pub, whatever it is, is going to generate more money. Um, but uh, £24,000, and it looks as if there's there could be some pushback here from some of the hotels, from some of the bars and so on. Um, if, uh, if if you're thinking of using Airbnb uh, and effectively renting a place in Qatar, um, where your landlord actually stands in terms of it, you know, is, is this a personal dwelling is this a commercial dwelling that appears to be uncertain as well um it does look as if the qatari authorities are relaxing some of the the alcohol rules um first of all the, the there's going to be uh, a drop in the in the price of alcohol i think it was it or it is around about 12 to 15 pounds a pint because yeah. you know clearly there are restrictions for uh you know legal and cultural reasons in, in qatar i think the price is dropping to around about 7 to 8 pounds a pint which which yeah as you know i don't drink alcohol but that still that still strikes me as you know, even west ham aren't charging quite as much as that <laughs> um, and also there's going to be increased hours in which uh, alcohol is to be made available but you're normally drinking this alcohol in the bar, watching the football. Now, if the bar cannot afford to show the football, um, we could be left with a complication. Um, therefore, you might say, "Okay, I know, I'll go to the fan zone." And um, I've, I've, again, I've, I've been to fan zones um, at World Cups. I've been, you know, going along, and you know, 2006 in Germany was absolutely amazing. I, I don't think I've ever been covered in more alcohol than <laughs> when when I went to see Germany play Sweden. I think it was it's either the last sixteen or the last eight. Uh, so full of uh, full of full of German fans. Uh, Germany scored uh, twice in the first fifteen minutes, and there was there was joy and celebration and alcohol thrown. Um, but if you're if you're thinking of going to the fan zone, it, it looks as if you're, you're going to have to pay for the privilege, and it, and it yeah. could be that it's going to cost you seventy five quid to get in, uh, and then that's before you start paying for your drink. So, uh, it I'm not quite sure what the objective or the strategy. And yeah, we, and I spoke a bit earlier. You know, part of my praise for uh, Plymouth Argyle is that they do have a definite strategy. Trying to work out what the strategy is here of uh, combination of FIFA, Qatar, Bayern Sports, um, and everybody else involved. Um, they their their perception of what a fan can do, wants to do, and what that the fan can afford um, does appear to be at odds because also the cost of accommodation seems very very expensive as well. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, first of all, Kieran, if you're if you're paying eight or nine quid a pint, you probably aren't going to throw it, even if you score a goal in the last minute. <laughs> um, my understanding is I've been doing some research on this recently that the fan zone 75 pound ticket one of them gets you free access to a beach so that's handy but I, I, there's a lot of people saying that the authorities in Qatar as you hinted at have absolutely no idea about European South American fan culture and are totally unprepared for it and there's all sorts of rumblings about 
infrastructure still not being ready. Some of mm. the fan accommodation, the cheapest ones are literally uh, balsa wood huts or tents with a bed in and a 40 miles away from Doha, which takes a lot of doing because it's a tiny country. So I think those people have assumed that it would be a super efficient World Cup because it's a super rich country might be in for a slight surprise. But it's time, Kieran, for we've been teasing mm. it long enough. Nick DeMarco is, I think it's fair to say, he's a legal equivalent of you, Kieran, except he's, you know, he's the leading barrister in sports law in this country. He's an author too. Uh, the second edition of his book, Football and the Law, has just been released. So we asked Nick to talk a little about that and also to answer some of our listeners' questions. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Nick, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for agreeing to answer some questions from our listeners and essentially give free legal advice to some of them. Before we, before we do that, uh, the book has been incredibly well received. Did you enjoy writing it and what made you decide that it was needed? Well, it's a second edition. So we first decided it was needed a few years ago and I think it was because more and more of us, um, that those of us who practice in this area, at the, both at the bar and solicitors, were finding that um, that there is increasingly a particular area of practice just around football because it's you know the biggest and best sport in the world, but it's also got the most money. Certainly in England, mm. English football such a great success story, and there are issues in football that arise that are quite unique to football and don't arise in other sports and we just realized there was that gap in the market that there wasn't a book that was helpful for anyone could be a lawyer could be someone at a football club whoever who's got a particular issue and you want one place which is practically useful where you can go and look for the answer and that was the idea behind the book and it was the first book in the world to do that very well received and so we've sort of updated it, brought in new authors, added some new chapters and, and got the second edition, which I think is much improved to the first. Um, and and that, that's really the point of it. I, I always do try and say to people who might not be lawyers that um, it's not like a novel. You're not meant to read it cover to cover. You can yeah. if you want to. I've, I've heard some people do. But, you know, it's it's the type of book I use in my practice and hopefully other people will where you've got a particular problem and you want one place to look up the answer or at least to know where to start to look elsewhere for the answer. And, and that's what I hope the, the book does. I certainly use it myself when I've got a new case. I, oh, let me look up my own book because I think we cover that somewhere. <laughs> so that's, well, that's what the point is. 
and um, it seems it seems to be doing that. So we're we're very pleased about that. By my estimation, Nick, there are probably about twenty five million pub lawyers in this country. It's amazing how many people you talk to before a football match who are convinced they know about the law and are ninety nine percent of the time wrong. Are you often surprised <laughs> by? Are you often surprised by the? the ignorance of people at a high level in football of the law? Because there's a lot of people who assume they know the law without checking that they're right. And they, as I say, they, they aren't often. Well, I used to be surprised by it. I'm, I'm rarely surprised now, partly because things are a, a lot better now than when I started. And I remember one of my first football cases, and it was literally a, a con- not a contract, but an agreement to cover the payment of a player's wages that had been scribbled on the back of an envelope in a bar <laughs> between, you know, a, a, a rich supporter of a club and a club with not much money. And then you have all sorts of arguments about it. And and so, at, you know, you're talking about big contracts and the going back, you know, 15, 20 years, very few clubs even employing lawyers, often having rich benefactors, who in their own companies would be very careful about how they spent their money, but suddenly seem to lose all sense of, of, of professionalism when they were running football clubs. And so um, things now are a lot better than they were then. That's not to say that there's not still a lot of that. So I'm probably much less surprised than, than, I, than I would have been. Um, but certainly it's one of the things I learned early being a football lawyer is is to be used to that sort of thing. And when I've seen some of my colleagues and they get involved in a football case, they can be very, if they're not used to it before, they can be very surprised at the, at the sort of level of preparation that there might be, given the money's at stake. It's quite different to other areas even now. But as I say, it's, it's become a lot more professional. As for fans, yes, of course, you get all kinds of views, whether it's about football the the football itself you know uh, the the fans are the best managers experts at everything <laughs> uh, or about the law or whatever else but it's also fair to say that often they're spot on and they come up with um good interesting ideas that some lawyers haven't so i give them credit to oh, it's no surprise uh, to know, Nick, that we've had many, many questions. It's into three figures, so we've had to whittle them down. Uh, and I suspect we may not have time to get through the selection that we have chosen. Uh, but let's kick off with one from uh, Dan Connors, which is a, a fairly general one. But Dan Connors says he's interested to hear your thoughts, Nick, on what areas of football the legal profession are currently not involved in that he thinks that might be in the future. Yeah, well, that, that's a that's a good question. If I knew, I would have put a chapter in our book about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've a chapter about everything that, <laughs> that arises. Um, but no, I think, um, you know, one of the emerging areas, the emerging sexy areas you hear about is NFTs and fan oh, yes. tokens and these sort of Jack in the Beanstalk things that are, that are coming in. Um, and uh, I think that, could cause some litigation. I think generally um, fans' rights, consumer rights is an area that um, may we may see grow. So I think that's one to look out for. Um, but another one is is the whole issue about um, one of Kieran's pet subjects, I believe, the, the, the independent football regulator. Yeah. If it comes in, then um, 
what a lot of people haven't focused on and what interests me as a lawyer is it would almost certainly be um, uh, reviewable by the courts in, in what's called judicial review. So the, the FA, for instance, or the leagues, they're all private bodies. And that means that you can't take them to court. But if you have an independent statutory regulator, you could take it to court. And I think that could mean, for example, clubs might say, well, hold on, independent statutory regulator, you haven't properly enforced a financial fair play rule against this other club. And they might then review that decision. And you may even have interested fan groups having standing to bring claims against the independent regulator. And the other big difference that would mean is that these decisions would be played out in the high court and in public uh, for the first time and not in private arbitration. So all of that is a very interesting unintended consequence, perhaps, of this statutory regulator if it comes in. And of course, you've always argued that private arbitration is much better than going to court, haven't you? <laughs> I, is that a joke? Or no, no, I, 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 no, no. I, I, I have very mixed feelings about it, Kevin. Um, I think there are great advantages for private arbitration, but I also think in sport it can. Uh, th- th- there's a huge tension there because unlike normal commercial arbitration between you know two companies who are uh, shipping goods around the world. A lot of these sports arbitrations are about rules that affect all the parties and have to be applied fairly as between all of those parties. And for them to be determined entirely privately behind closed doors, where even the other parties don't get to have a say or even know what the result is sometimes, Mm. as with Premier League arbitration, I think is problematic. So I think there's a very good argument in sports arbitration for hearings to be considered, some of them, to be in public and not in private. Um, Of course, you can have confidential commercial information could be dealt with in in private. But I think there's there's a move now gradually towards more of this being in public, even though a lot of the regulators aren't too keen on that. You you found a very good way of confusing a professional comedian there by asking them if that's a, if that's a joke that always always, <laughs> always baffles us. Um, Rose Lawrence is one of many people to ask uh, a question. I suspect most lawyers are asked at some stage in their career. Certainly, most barristers, uh, and I've paraphrased it slightly. Um, when you take a case on. Do you sometimes do so for professional reasons or out of academic interest, or do you have to believe in the justice of that case before you accept it? Yes, well, um, the answer is is that you we have what's called rather quaintly, and I think it's spectacularly misnamed, the cab rank rule as oh. as barristers. It's one of our code of conduct. And, I, I say it's spectacularly misnamed because it, it's based on the idea that when you hail a cab, they'll take you to wherever you want to go and they'll never say, sorry, I'm not going south of the river. Um, <laughs> which is not my experience necessarily. Um, and so the idea is that we should take on any case that's within our area of expertise, so long as we've got the time for it and so on. And there's a good reason for that uh, concept. It, Anyone, however unpopular or despised they are, should have access to the best lawyer. And if people pick and choose their clients, depending on their own personal beliefs, you end up not having that system. Um, So 
professionally, we are obliged to take on whatever case. And and the second point is that I think you're a better lawyer if you are able to see both sides of an argument. Then there normally are two sides of an argument. Uh, and if you act for both sides in different cases, if you act for a party you might not disagree with, but have to put forward arguments on its behalf, um, I think you become a better lawyer and you have a better judgment and objectivity. So uh, generally speaking, no, you, you take on cases um, because they are interesting, of course, but also because you're a barrister and it's a case that's come to you and you should be taking it on unless you're too busy or it's something you can't do. Of course, the most interesting cases you enjoy the most. And if you're academically interested in it or committed to the result, you you may be happier uh, when you win. Um, but uh, I often am, am acting for parties I don't necessarily agree with. And just because I act for them isn't a sign of my own personal views. My personal views are entirely separate mm. to those I put uh, on behalf of the client. And again, that that's, you know, it's important for a judge. If you're in front of a judge and they're listening to you, they don't want to hear your personal views and they, they don't want to think, oh, God, it's DeMarco again. He's 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 always going to argue the same thing. You know, they, they want to be persuaded that the answer is legally correct. And so that level of independence is important for a barrister. Uh, Mark Collins asks this question is the threshold for a criminal charge of assault or ABH different on a football pitch to a town centre on a Friday night um, basically yes uh, it's um, it, 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 it of course depends on the circumstances as we lawyers say in response to just about every question but <laughs> it's all it's really all about consent you, you, you think of it in one extreme think about uh, boxing uh, boxers consent to enter a competition where they both try and inflict serious damage to each other by throwing punches at each other's heads and trying to knock the other one out unconscious. Now, they're not going to get arrested for assault for doing that because that they have consented to that sport. In football, footballers consent to a contact sport that involves tackling and competing for a ball that can cause injury. And so the mere doing of those things is not going to lead to a criminal charge. But that doesn't mean to say that you can deliberately aim to break someone's leg regardless of where the ball is um, because you've got a grudge against them on a football field that so, so it, it's different but you know if I was out on a Friday night in the town centre and someone came and tackled me for my pint they, they would probably be done for assault because I hadn't consented to that and so there is that difference. Okay, we have a question from an Irish listener, uh, friend of the show, Colm Hand. Uh, and again, this particular club has been mentioned several times. Uh, Colm says there's been movement towards cross-border breakaway leagues in recent years. And now we've seen FC Swift Hesperange in Luxembourg challenging UEFA to allow them to compete elsewhere. Are there any laws that specifically stop leagues from merging and I, I know as well off the back of that I know quite a few Glasgow Rangers fans who are looking at that Luxembourg case because they think that might be the the loophole that they need to escape from Scottish football and perhaps get into the English league yeah I mean it's a very interesting question the the breakaway league 
that case and also the Super League case. And there's also the in golf, there's a live sport yeah. case going on yeah. at the moment. Breakaway leagues, I think, is something we're going to see a lot more of and a lot more cases about it. Um, you know, ultimately, and a lawyer might not normally say this, I don't think this is ultimately a legal question. There are very uh. important legal arguments about this on both sides. But ultimately, I think this is a commercial question. If you look back, the um, the Premier League was a breakaway league, wasn't it? It broke yeah. away from the Football League. Uh, there were court cases about it. The FA and the Football League tried to stop it. But there was a momentum behind it. Um, there was a sky money. And ultimately, it was a great success. And it's continued to be now integrated as part of our league system and a, a great success for English football for all its faults. Um, on the other hand, the recent Super League was a complete failure. And it was a failure not only because of the legal obstacles it faced, but I think much more so when we look back, it was a failure, wasn't it? Because it was so unpopular. It was about the only thing that united every politician in England that I yeah. can remember and every football fan, including the fans of the clubs who were trying to break away. It became so unpopular that commercially it became unviable from the start. And I think that those matters are ultimately more important and the law will follow and adapt to those changes rather than ultimately be um, the, the, the decisive factor, in my view. Uh, Michael Sibenga asks um, about the recent Newcastle takeover saga, which, of course, you were involved with. Michael says there is a lot of talk of the, the top six clubs, the so-called super six clubs, trying to stop the takeover going through and then subsequently, post-takeover, trying to stop Newcastle growing as a club by restricting income growth. Do you think there's any likelihood of anti-competition case being brought against Premier League clubs or the Premier League as a whole or maybe even against UEFA for FFP rules which appear to prevent ambitious clubs from competing with the established ones? Well, there already has been one competition law case against UEFA in relation to their FFP rules. That failed. Um, and there will almost certainly be future ones, uh, both against UEFA and the Premier League, in relation to all sorts of matters, including the ones Michael is talking about. Um, those sorts of cases are very complex because you have to establish... It's far too much to talk about in a short answer, but you have to establish many things to, to get a competition law case off the ground, not just that something is anti-competitive. But ultimately, you come down to a question, if, if you can establish something is anti-competitive, take financial fair play, for example. That is obviously anti-competitive because it restrains competition. It restrains the amount a club can invest. If you establish it's at least arguably anti-competitive, the real issue then is whether it's um, it, whether it, it it is justified by some legitimate objective that is proportionate. That's the legal language they use. And in in FFP, um, the objective is is said to be uh, financial stability. And if the measures imposed um, are, encourage financial stability, and they don't go further than is necessary to encourage financial stability. Courts and tribunals will generally say it's a justified restraint on competition. And that those are the sort of questions you, you have to look at. And so it's whether a particular act or a particular rule or measure 
goes further than necessary for whatever the legitimate interest is. And, and in those cases, competition law challenges may succeed. Uh, this is an, a very interesting question, I think, Nick. It, it wasn't asked for you specifically. It was asked to us, but we decided only you could answer it. Um, and again, it's about Newcastle. Trev, uh, Gareth Nunn says, could a player at Newcastle who was signed under the Mike Ashley regime ask for his contract to be ripped up because the current owners hold political and cultural views different from his own? Well, you know, lawyers like me normally say there's two sides to every question and don't give you a straight answer. <laughs> but here I can probably give you a straight answer, which is no. Uh, right. Generally speaking, in employment law, uh, any employer, whether a football player or whoever it is, doesn't have a right to rip up uh, his or her contract of employment because they have different views to their bosses. Um, and you could imagine the carnage if you could rip up your uh, contract of employment because you, you hold a different view. Or And of course, if that was mutual, which it ought to be in an employment contract, then bosses could fire workers because they disagreed with them so the the whole thing would be crazy so no that wouldn't work but what is a more interesting question i think and and is related and newcastle fans should remember is is um the religion and belief discrimination that can arise so i and newcastle fans may remember pape sisse and demba bar yeah, yeah. not wanting to wear the the wonga payday loan company branded shirts yeah um, when Newcastle had those on grounds of their religious belief against usury. And you can see that's, that becomes slightly different because you're a football player and you're required to promote something, let's say get betting or gambling, that may be fundamentally against one of your beliefs which is protected in law. And so there, there may be slightly more complex arguments. But even then... In, in my view, it's unlikely that the players would be able to refuse to comply with their contract, which includes promoting the club's uh, um, uh, official sponsor and so on. Um, but uh, th those are probably the more likely areas for litigation. Now, by way of a refreshing sorbet, uh, Nick, before we carry on with the legal questions, Holly Blades is also a Newcastle fan, but she's just got a football question for her. We know you're a big football fan. Um, her question is, uh, where do you think Newcastle will finish in the table this season? Well, at the beginning of the season, I predicted they'd be in the top 10, and I would still hold to that. I think, um, I, I think and I hope they will be there exactly where. I'm, I, I don't know, maybe seven or eight is, 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 would be good. Uh, and possible. Uh, it's difficult to say. I think um, both Newcastle, Newcastle is a, a great club. It's great to see it competing. Another club uh, I follow, you'll be pleased to hear, is Brighton, another good client of mine. And <laughs> I, think, I think both Newcastle and Brighton have had a great start and could both finish within the top 10. And one of them might just get to upset the top six. I think that's possible this year, and it would be great if one of them could. Uh, I, I, almost was, <laughs> I almost was about to say I'm legally bound to say this, but of course, as you know, I'm not legally bound to say it. I'm honour bound to point out that Brighton haven't played anybody yet. 
Uh, <laughs> that's as simple as that. We'll, we'll come only back. Liverpool. Yeah. Well, only yeah, they played <laughs> Liverpool. They got a, they got a, they got a point the same way we did. So we'll, we'll come back to that one uh, yeah, on the next day. Um, our next question comes from Nobby Clark. Nobby Clark is a Palace fan. He drinks in the same pub as me pretty much. Um, Good. And I'm having to uh, paraphrase his question as I go along because it's got lots of clauses. But basically, Nobby says we we've talked about recently on the pod quite a few clubs getting relatively paltry fines from UEFA for breaches of FFP. And Nobby says in the past decade or so, the UK has started to follow the common US practice of applying such fines to individual directors of companies, as well as the company itself. Is there any reason why UEFA couldn't do the same? And if so, do you think this might dissuade clubs from flaunting FFP? Well, I think that it's generally speaking unnecessary and ought to be avoided to hold individual directors liable. I say generally speaking because, it, again, it depends on what they've done. Let's say a club has breached FFP. Um, in most cases where clubs breach FFP, you've got a reasonable difference of opinion between uh, about accounting standards, for example, between a club and its auditors and, um, and the regulator. And so... I don't see why a director should be personally punished for that. It's different if a director is personally involved in some deliberate dishonest act, for example, hiding payments or something like that. In those sort of exceptional circumstances where there's some dishonesty, then um, one can see it may be necessary to go after an individual director as well as a club. But th those are rare cases, and it's also harder to prove dishonesty than simply a, a difference in accounting standards for obvious reasons. In the Sheffield Wednesday case, for example, that I, I was involved in, the, the EFL did initially bring individual charges against some of the directors, but it had to drop them and uh, just go after the club because of the, the high standards of of trying to prove something like dishonesty. So I don't think in, in FFP cases, you're likely to see that. Um, I have in other cases, you know, in FA cases, there's an increasing tendency to go after individual directors where they've breached a, a rule about payments to agents and so on. But generally speaking, I, I don't think we will see that tendency. Um, we have three questions to go, uh, Nick, because I know... Uh, we're asking a lot of you time-wise. The, the, the first of these questions is one of the shortest, but I suspect may lead to one of the longer answers. It comes from Tom Lawrence. Uh, and Tom says, as we become increasingly American-owned uh, in the Premier League, would Nick have a view on the legality of the Premier League becoming a closed shop or franchise league? Just to give that a bit of context, Nick, I mean, this was something we used to joke about as a scenario, but I believe it's, it's now... 10 clubs in the Premier League mm, are, yeah. have a majority owned by Americans. And as we know, you only need 14 to institute a, a major change. So this is a, an issue that's of growing concern. And also a supplementary question to you. I, I, I don't think, I know Kieran believes that the government would get involved to prevent any change in the Premier League, but then surely that would that would involve FIFA because FIFA would, don't like government interference in any football, do they? They don't like it unless it's something <laughs> that, that they agree with. So, you know, do you remember <laughs> Boris Johnson threatened a, a legislative bomb, I think was his words, if the Super League went ahead. And uh, FIFA, who were also against the Super League at the time, very strongly um, 
didn't say a word about that. So, uh, okay. you know, it all depends, doesn't it? it? It's like everything with these these points. And it is, I, I do repeat my last answer. In these areas, uh, as we say in uh, our football and the law book, law follows the money and football follows the money. And ultimately, this is a commercial and political decision, I think. Uh, I, I hope it, we do not have a closed shop or franchise league. Uh, not only because I think it would be terrible for the fans, but I also think it would be a commercial disaster um, because relegation from uh, and promotion to the Premier League is one of those areas that creates some of the most excitement um, and brings in the most money to those who watch the Premier League and, and also bringing in new clubs. We're looking at Brighton now, Crystal Palace, Leicester, uh, those, those sort of clubs who aren't necessarily always been in the Premier League or even Manchester City 20 mm. years ago yeah. were not in the Manchester City, were not in the Premier League. So um, I think it would be a disaster to have a closed shop. But ultimately, th these are commercial questions and the law will adapt to them. There'll be legal arguments on both sides, but it won't be resolved by lawyers, in my view, we'll just be there arguing the cases. It will be it will be resolved by where the money is, where the support is. As I say, the Premier League succeeded when it formed. The Super League was a disaster. Neither of those were ultimately legal questions. It's it, it's slightly worrying, Nick, to almost hear you imply that money sometimes trumps the law, or can trump the law, or trump the will to do anything about the law. It's not that surprising, though, is it? I mean, no, sports it's law, it's a, it's a way of the world. Sports law as a concept is something that has generally developed with the commercialization of sport. The idea of, of lawyers being able to argue um, about uh, the, the rights of, of, of players or clubs and reviewing decisions of regulators, all of these things have become increasingly common as a result of the fact that more money is at stake in, uh, in, in legal disputes in sport and in football in particular. Uh, and that's how law has developed. Law has developed with com commerce. Um, law is not some uh, immutable thing that stands above society and is always the same and unchanging. Uh, it is something, I think, that's developed with society and, and one sees that in sport. Our penultimate question, Nick, comes from Marcia Big. Um, Marcia is a Chesterfield fan and this is an issue that I know she feels very strongly about. It's, a, it's about the PFA, the Professional Footballers Association, and National League players. The National League itself is classified as an elite league, which meant it carried on playing during COVID. Despite this... And the fact that the majority of teams are full-time, the National League is not classed as a professional league, which means that players can't join the PFA unless they've been part of a professional setup before. This impacts the treatment of injured players, as seen at my club, Chesterfield, where Cabby Shimanga was able to get treatment at St George's Park, yet despite playing in the same team, George Carline wasn't. Is there a way for someone to challenge the FA, the National League or the PFA, to change the National League status so that there is more parity between players. And it, I mean, it does seem an odd one, isn't it, that a, a player in one team can get treatment that might affect his, the rest of his career, the rest of his life, and a, another one can't? Yes. Uh, um, 
as someone who acts for both the PFA and the national ah, team, okay, I know uh, where this is going. <laughs> often, I'll be careful what I say. Yeah. But I think Marcia does have a point, and I, I think we're in a different situation now than we were before. I mean, I, I remember when I started acting as a sports lawyer, doing the old case for a national league club, then the conference club. Um, mainly because I was really cheap in those days and the clubs had no money whatsoever. Um, but now I, I, I still do such cases occasionally and I've noticed a huge difference. When I did cases back then, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was rare to have a professional player in the National League or yeah, the then conference. Yeah. Now it's rare not to have a professional mm. player in the National League. And so where most of the players have professional contracts, it seems to me that it ought to be recognised as so, and hopefully it will in the future. Our last question, it comes from Liam Reynolds, um, and it reflects the fact that most football fans these days will desperately look for some kind of legal loophole to prevent their relegation or to stop another team they don't like going up. Um, Liam is an Aston Villa fan, and he recalls, as I'm sure you do, that during the COVID lockdown Premier League season, um, it was a game between Villa and Sheffield United where the ball crossed the line, but because of a Hawkeye regularity, somebody was in the way, it wasn't given as a goal. Um, the game finished nil-nil, and then Villa ended up staying up by one point with Watford relegated instead of them. Would Watford have any right to claim, because of that, um, financial compensation? And if so, would they claim it from Aston Villa or would they claim it from the operators of Hawkeye? a good question and, and you're right Kevin that not only supporters but also club owners look at this sort of thing a lot more now because yeah. of the cost of, of relegation um, I think in fact it was Bournemouth because both Bournemouth, I, I look back oh, right. okay. because I remember this, both Bournemouth and Watford were relegated with one point less than Villa but Bournemouth had slightly better goal difference so Bournemouth were in third from bottom so it would would have been Bournemouth's claim and not Watford's claim. Um, but in any event, the would there be a claim? If there and if there was a claim, who would it be against? It's a difficult one, but these things are uh, you know challenging ones are the types of things that um, are my bread and butter. So yeah. it, it's it's certainly worth looking at. If there was a claim, I think the most likely respondent would not be Villa or Hawkeye, but the Premier League, because the Premier League are responsible for the arrangements with Hawkeye. And Villa didn't actually do anything wrong. It's not like the old West Ham-Tevez case, where West Ham were found to have breached the rules, and that breach in playing Tevez was found to have relegated Sheffield United, because it gave West Ham at least one more point. Here, Villa haven't breached any rule, um, But have the Premier League failed in some kind of duty to a relegated club by either not having Hawkeye working properly or not taking steps to correct it? Again, perhaps difficult claim, but I think that's where you'd be looking. It's interesting, wasn't it? At the end of last season, we saw Leeds and Burnley muttering dark threats about taking the, uh, the Premier League uh, not to court, but certainly asking why the Premier League weren't doing more to stop Everton buying players because of FFP rules. And then as soon as Leeds stayed up, they, of course, uh, stopped the dark mutterings. I presume that's fairly common in football, is it, that people threaten legal action until whatever they, they worry about happening doesn't happen to them? Well, um, 
be, having been involved in those in, in that particular case, I I couldn't possibly comment. But I think you'd be you'd be right to assume that generally speaking, it, it it's it's bound to be true, isn't it? That uh, if you have avoided relegation, you're less likely to pursue something than if you um, have suffered relegation as a result of something you think is a breach. I was getting a bit antsy, Nick, that I, <laughs> you, you you hadn't said I couldn't possibly comment up till now, but now, now you have done. I think that seems a good place. I can't thank you enough for answering those questions, Nick. I can't wait to read the book. It's Football and the Law, um, which is available now, and I'm sure many of our listeners will be very interested in, in buying it uh, and reading it. And we wish you every success with that, and I'm sure we'll be asking you on the show in future. Are you still going down to QPR? Yes, I'm going on Friday. We had a great win away. Just uh, don't know when you. We had a great win away at Sheffield United. Yeah, Friday at home to Reading. It's almost a derby, so uh, it's a a super hoops against the fake hoops. So I can't. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you what, people who haven't been. uh, It's always going to be Loftus Road. I know it's it's different. People who haven't been to, to QPR. The atmosphere at QPR for an evening game is as good as anywhere yeah. in the country, I think. It's amazing. A full house, QPR, evening game, it's it's brilliant. People used to talk about the, the old West Ham ground and they talk about Sellers Park now, but it's a fantastic atmosphere at QPR. It's a, it's a great club, isn't it? No, it is. It is really great. And um, you guys, thanks for having me on the show. It's a great show. I really enjoy listening to it. So you do a brilliant job. Nick, thank you very much. Uh, so do you. It's been a pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye now. Cheers. It's a really, I mean, we could have been there all day, Kieran. I mean, we certainly had enough questions to keep him there all day, but mm. uh, obviously there were time constraints. Um, it took a while to get him back because Guy worried that we might have to pay him his barrister rate um, once we resolve that. It's good to hear him talk about football, but it's, it's, I say some of these answers really fascinated me. And I, I, I hope Marcia at least is happy with the answer to her question because I know that's been bothering and I think of all the big issues that we talked about that was the one that legally most concerned me because that's a strange anomaly but Mm. I I think Nick DeMarco is certainly one of those people that we will be getting back on the pod uh, in the near future hopefully because there's always going to be questions to be asked and it's interesting isn't it Kieran you talked about football finance just early on in the pod only in the last 20 years 10 years even of people taking it seriously And, and as Nick says it's the same with with the law, like ten years ago, people who ran football clubs had as much idea of, of the law relating to football as people who drink in pubs, i.e., not much. Yes, and, and I think also the the phrase which Nick used, I think, on, on perhaps on more than one occasion, is that that football follows the money, and, and mm. football law follows the money, and football finance follows the money, because all of a sudden the the monetary consequences of a decision from a legal perspective or from a financial perspective, have such huge implications in terms of club funding, in terms of transfer strategy, in terms of expansion of the club, in terms of European participation, uh, potential and so on, that uh, that clubs are taking it very seriously. Uh, and, yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I, I could listen to Nick all day. He's, uh, he, because I always thought that lawyers would talk in a language which I didn't understand because if, if ever I've read a contract, yeah, when I'm buying a house or getting involved in a, in a, in something, I could never understand 
what they wrote in terms of uh, legal jargon. But Nick is absolutely brilliant. He just he cuts through all that, and and he he is uh, he, he is he's very direct and he's very measured. And I thought his answers were superb. Mm. Uh, so thank you to Nick and thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page if you'd like to make a small monthly contribution as well then go to patreon.com slash price of football our next live show will remember as we said will take place at Plymouth Argyle's home park on Tuesday the 13th of December tickets are now available for Plymouth Argyle's website there's only a couple available so get in quick if you have a question you'd like answered the show email us at questions at price of football.com in the meantime I shall hand you over to Mr Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell well thanks as always folks uh for all the interest you take in the show and and uh thanks for everybody that wrote in those questions for Nick you know we, we had loads and loads more but we, we you know I think it you know it, out of respect for Nick uh, you know, he is a uh, he's, he's a man in demand from many sources, and he kindly gave us some of his time. Um, we, we had to cut those down. Uh, Patreon is one way of supporting the show for as little as a pound a month, but there's another way that you can show us a bit of uh, positive vibes, uh, and that's to go on to your uh, podcast app. Um, and if you can give us a review, uh, it, it does help us. Uh, it, it keeps keeps interest as far as uh, the algorithms of Spotify and Apple are concerned. Um, and if, if you if you think we're worth five stars, that that certainly helps as well because it's the stars which generate or cer- certainly uh, contribute to where we are in the table. Um, by all accounts, it doesn't matter what you say as far as the narrative is concerned. Although you know, we, we we do read them, yeah, you know, we always try to pick up on the feedback. So so you could say you would you'd rather the show was presented by Nick DeMarco and perhaps Sean Ryder from the Happy Mondays. <laughs> and I think that would be an absolutely fantastic show. <laughs> I, 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 that 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 would get my twisting my melon, man, for certain. <laughs> oh, it isn't even Shakira twisting his melon. Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. I'm for the